0: Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Center, or IOWC, at McGill University. I am joined by Drs. Philip Gooding and Archisman Chowdhury, two postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC.
2: Hi, Renee. Thank you for having me here again.
3: Hi, Rennie. Thank you for having me here again.
1: You will hear more from them later in the podcast. But today we are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Stephen Sorels, a research fellow at the Leibniz Zentrum Moderner Orient in Berlin, Germany. Dr. Sorels holds a PhD in history from McGill University and is the author of two monographs published in the Palgrave series in Indian Ocean World Studies. The first, Starvation and the State, Famine, Slavery, and Power in Sudan 1883 to 1956, published in 2013, and the second, The Impoverishment of the African Red Sea Littoral circa 1640 to 1945, published in 2018. Today, we are lucky to have Dr. Sorrells join us to discuss animal diseases as threats to state power in the Southern Red Sea region, or SRSR, a region in the northwest of the Indian Ocean world. This builds on work he has recently published on animals in the history of the SRSR, including, for example, Horses and Power in the SRSR Since the 17th Century, which was published as a chapter in Animal Trade Histories in the Indian Ocean World, uh, which we actually discussed a couple of weeks ago in one of our previous podcasts with editors Martha Chaklin and Philip Gooding. So if you haven't checked out that podcast, go check it out at our appraising Risk website. Dr. Sorrells has recently published Early European Colonial Rule on the African Red Sea Littoral, which is published in the first issue of the 17th volume of Northeast African Studies 2017. So, Dr. Sorrells, it is such a pleasure to have you with us today. And thank you so much for joining us and agreeing to record this podcast with us.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be able to talk about my work today.
1: We're really excited to hear about your work. Um, And so my first question is pretty broad and then I will pass the question on to Archisman and Philip to ask uh, more specific details about your research. So can you discuss your research into animal diseases as threats to state power in the southern Red Sea region or SRSR? Uh, Which diseases are you discussing? Which are the most important and how do these diseases relate to state power?
0: Uh, Sure Um... So the link between animal diseases and staying power is something that I've been exploring across a number of articles and my most recent book, uh, The Impoverishment of the African Red Sea Littoral. That is a long durée history of pastoralists in eastern Sudan, lowland Eritrea, the Wash River Valley of Ethiopia and northern Djibouti. And because it is about pastoralists, people that, that make their living, living from exploiting animals, um, it, it dealt with animals, but that was not really the focus of my work. My research has generally been focused on poverty, understanding the causes of poverty and the consequences of poverty, including my work on famine, which is a special case of poverty. But nonetheless, my work has always dealt with animals because animals are a fact. They are present in the region. And I'm, I note that um, there's many ways in which my work notes the presence of animals, uh, particularly because of their usefulness. Animals are often wealth, they are food, they're predators they're beasts of burden, sometimes they're military tools. Um, And like mainly I've been focusing on that, and more recently I've been really trying to think of animals as also living beings. And as living beings, they they have their own frailties, right? They must eat and drink. They can also get injured, just like humans. They get sick and they can die. Um, And like everyone else, as a result of the current pandemic, I have been re-examining exactly what this means, this last part, that they can get sick and die, and what that means for for the fact of the rest of my research. Uh, In particular, I've been looking at two related things. One, animals play a crucial role in mediating human relationships in the region that I study, and that animals can get sick and die. And so today, I just wanna talk about one part of what it is that I've been thinking about recently, which is just one class of human relations, and those are the ones that are embedded within the state. And I, uh, like within this, I, I want to really make two assertions that we can talk about. The first one is that animals are central to the establishment, consolidation, and maintenance of state power in this region. And the second one is that animal diseases have been a threat to state power. Um, these assertions have their own history because this has not always been true. Uh, especially now, most recently, this has become less and less true. And the importance of animals to the state has diminished over the course of the 20th century and um, with this diminishment of the importance of animals comes the diminishment of the importance of animal diseases. Uh, so to explain what it is that I mean about all of this I first need to a little bit describe the region that I that I'm interested in. So I look at the southern Red Sea region this is a this is a sub-region of the Indian Ocean world and as a sub-region of the Indian Ocean world it, is, it too is defined by the sea Um, In the Red Sea, there is a meteorological divide. In the northern part of the Red Sea, though the wind is controlled by forces, meteorological forces in the Mediterranean, and as a result has no seasonality. But in the southern part of the Red Sea, uh, south of the 19th parallel, they're controlled by the Indian Ocean monsoons that control the um, meteorological conditions in the other parts of the Indian Ocean world. And, uh, as a result, there are ways in which people have been able to harness these, these meteorological conditions to create interconnection. So now the area is divided between seven countries, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Djibouti, and Somalia, but this historically has not, these divisions have not always historically been where they are or as, as, um, as uh, strictly enforced as contemporary b- boundaries imply. Uh, historically, communities in this region have been able to develop patterns of human-environment interaction that allowed them um, first to produce, a large, produce steady and large enough surpluses that could therefore allow economic specialization that could, in turn, allow for the development of complex states with complex state cultures. Um, and these states themselves were dependent on the circulation of people, goods, and ideas, as is the case in other parts of the Indian Ocean world. And within this subunit, this, the Southern Red Sea region, this circulation was so intense that, it's, that I have been asserting over a number of articles and monographs that it's possible to treat this region as a single multifaceted socioeconomic system that transcends ethnic, religious, and linguistic divides. So there are states, but there, are, there is an interconnection between them. And the, the, the main states that are present in the region, there, historically, there have always been four. Uh, two on either side of the, of the Red Sea. On the African side of the Red Sea, historically, there's always been one on the Sudanese Nile, though the exact contours of the state have changed over time, and another one in the Ethiopian highlands. And on the Arabian side, there has always been one based in the Yemeni mountains and one in the Hijaz in Western Arabia. And the borders change. Sometimes they agglomerate. Often they don't. And also, in this region, what it means to be a state is maybe a, historically is less... Defined than what we now imagine. There are there are larger, there are the larger state entities, for example, for example, the Ethiopian Empire, but then they themselves may have client states or also client pastoralist groups or pastoralist groups that imagine themselves as being autonomous, but whose uh, chief is somehow uh, got their position as a result of their relationship with the state. The state has a complicated structure, but nonetheless there are states present. And these, so these states that are there, they are dependent, these states and their clients in this cascade of hierarchies is dependent really on three key animals, though for each state, not equally. And this also changes over time. And it's important to be sensitive to those. Uh, these three animals are camels, horses, and cattle. So uh, just, just a step back, like now that I've identified key animals there, Just to step back and talk a little bit about the implication that there are, that there could be imported animals within this region. Uh, In both African studies and Indian Ocean studies, there is a very strong focus on the concept of wealth in people. And I want to propose that there should also be a focus on wealth in animals. So wealth in people, it's like, at least in African studies, this is a fundamental Uh, assumption within uh, within African studies that in general in Africa there is a scarcity of people and an abundance of land. As a result people themselves are the scarce commodity and the ability to control people to put them to work is the ability to have power and that is how power is maintained and there's a lot of strategies for doing this. In Indian Ocean World Studies this is also key though it's a little bit more complicated and within the field this is more in a scholarly focus than necessarily true of all places of all time. Within the field of Indian Ocean World Studies, there has been a kind of general focus, uh, maybe a, a disproportionate focus on slavery as an institution, and particularly looking at slavery from the demand side. So the supply side for slavery in Indian Ocean World Studies is always treated very simply. Slaves are generated in war. You need to do something with war captives. The demand side is, also gener- is generally schematized as there is this need for having larger houses, that larger houses and bigger courts is the way that power is projected. It's the way that status in the market is created. It is the way that, that states in the end end up shoring themselves. And in this model, it's, very, it's a very human focused model. And I'm suggesting that this is in some way also mediated by human animal relations that we should pay attention to. So back to the animals that I'm interested in, camels, horses, and cattle, each one of these mediates human relationships in a different way. Camels, they're primarily beasts of burden, so they move goods over long distances. This is especially important for states uh, often uh, in the region that I study, but also true of other places, there isn't exactly a free trade in foreign luxury goods, there is a state monopsony. The the state is the purchaser of luxury goods and then uses these luxury goods in distributing them to clients as a way of ensuring the stability of the state. So the, the, whatever it is, the nice fabric, the spices, the golds, each one of these products, instead of going onto the open market, they they get taken by the camels into into the court. The court purchases them from the merchants and then distributes them, sometimes on camels. And this is this is particularly important because it is it is the way in which alliances are formed. It's the way in which relationships, state relationships, are solidified. And without the without the camels moving them, without the camels moving the luxury goods, this would be problematic. So the next one is horses. Horses primarily are a tool of war in the in the article in the. In the edited collection that you referenced earlier, I proposed that we should look at this region as having a state horse power complex, that horses were that violence and the threat of violence was often key to, to state power, particularly on policing the frontiers of the state. Uh, and that within this, within this exercise of violence, it was really command of cavalries, being able to mount people on horses that was itself decisive in battle. And this is because. Everyone depended on the same on the same weapons, swords, spears, and shields. These required short distances. The one real variable was speed. The, sta- this, the, the army that could move the fastest in battle, one that could get to the battlefield first, the one that had the advantage, and that advantage was decisive. Um, and then uh, cattle is slightly different. Cattle is a driver of the irrigation wheels and the pullers of plows. It is the, it, they are. Necessary for providing the grain surpluses that that support the unproductive elites that are at the center of the state. These states, they are also uh, used in bride wealth, so they are central to the to the creation of house of houses, which then themselves, uh, exist within the state hierarchy. And then also, and very importantly, they are stores of value. This is where the money goes. You use the money. You put it into that. You use it by putting it into expanding your herds, they are your bank accounts that that pay interest. And this is especially important in a land where gold and silver is scarce and is primarily used to pay for exports. But the, the, the flow is out. It's gold and silver go out to India, luxury goods come in, and whatever surplus value is captured gets put into expanding herds. So camels, horses, and cattle, they are living beings. They're vulnerable to viruses, bacteria, and parasites. And there's a large number of them that are present in the region that I study. Just to name a few of them, anthrax, rinderpest, camel pox, trypanosomiasis, African horse sickness, foot and mouth disease, each one of these poses to a greater or lesser extent, some kind of um, some kind of threat to the life of these animals. And at times this threat has been very major. So for example the rinderpest epidemic which uh, epizodic, which i have studied a lot this rinderpest is a disease that had not previously existed in this region until the end of the 19th century it was introduced by italians in 1887 it quickly spread in camel herds uh, in cattle herds uh, across the horn of africa and then across all of africa uh, it is a disease that is fatal that has a 90% case fatality rate in uh, naive populations that exist in the region And as a result, in the small window between 1887 and 1891, 90% of the cattle died. Um, And this has a lot of of implications for what was possible in terms of creation of states, in in terms of mustering of armies, in terms of being able to, to feed large numbers of people, and ultimately in the ability to resist colonial rule.
1: Wow, thank you so much for that answer, for that very interesting introduction to your work that we'll be discussing further today. Um, I think that concludes my questions for now. Um, so I'm going to ask my fellow hosts if they have any questions. So Archisman, we'll start with you. Do you have any questions for Dr. Sorrells? <sighs>
3: Yes, thank you, Rennie, and thank you, Dr. Cyrils, for that very interesting discussion of your work. I would like to ask a question that arises from your discussion just now and from your chapter in Animal Trade Histories in the Indian Ocean World. In the latter chapter, you argue that until the end of the 19th century, horses used as cavalry were integral to the assertion of state power in the Southern Red Sea region which you describe as a state or horsepower complex. However, from the beginning of the 20th century, cavalries were faced out in favor mostly of infantry with imported fast-loading rifles. Uh, I wonder what consequences did this have for animal diseases and their role of, and the role of these diseases in the assertion of state power in the Southern Red Sea region in other words how did the move away from animal power to industrialized power in militaries affect the relationship between animal diseases and state power
0: great question so in order to answer that question i think maybe i want to broaden it out more generally to talk about how mechanization in this region proceeded over the course of the 20th century. So in the Southern Red Sea re- region, mechanization is focused not just on the army, but really it's primarily only in those fields in which animals have been Im- important. So mechanization has been a factor in decoupling the state broadly defined in this kind of cascade of hierarchies and clients. Um, so decoupling the state from its dependence on animal. In this region, labor, has become very cheap. And if anything, it's becoming more and more cheap over the course of the 20th century. And this is a result of a number of factors. One is a population boom, but also really the settling of structural poverty, especially in the rural countryside and the urbanization of the region. So there's a growing population that cannot be productive on on land and therefore moves into the city and needs to find work. And so therefore is very cheap and as a result, there has been no real need or impulse to, fa- to replace human labor where it could possibly be replaced. But there has been a phasing out of animal labor. So in all three of these things, not just horses and cavalrys but being replaced by modern armaments, but also cattle on farms have been replaced by tractors and irrigation pumps. Camels have been replaced by trucks and road networks. Um, so in terms of the military, to get to the, the actual focus of your question, um, it's true, the introduction of rifles to the battlefield in large numbers began at the end of the 19th century and really over the course of the 20th century. And this had an implication for what was decisive on the battlefield. Whereas in, before they get introduced, the main thing was speed and therefore horses. This was no longer, this became no longer the case. What, be, what is decisive, what continues to be decisive, what became decisive and continues to be decisive is access to deadlier and deadlier wep- weapons. And so now it doesn't matter whether or not you can get to your enemy quickly. It, it actually doesn't even matter if you can get to your enemy. You, you, the army, does not actually ever need to be there. And we can see this as things that are playing out right now. Um, like, for example, the, U- the US has used drones to bomb in Yemen. The US is not, they were not on the battlefield in Yemen. The person that drops the bomb in Yemen is sitting in the United States. It was not, they did not need to get there. The, the, the weapon itself, the modern armament is the thing that did it. They don't need the conveyance that was horses. And then we see this, uh, this is like um, the fact of horses no longer being important to, this, to the army and therefore the state has played out very recently uh, in a kind of like trajo-comic way. Uh, at the end of March, 2020, Saudi Arabia bombed a number of targets in Yemen. This is part of a longer engagement, military engagement in the region. And one of those targets ended up being a horse stable on a military base and 70 horses were killed. And this has been used by people trying to advocate for the end of the Saudi Arabian Bombardment campaign as proof that this is not legitimate. But there is no way that horses, even military horses, could be considered a legitimate target of war because they are not a legitimate military target because they are not legitimate, they are not really a part of the military, even though these were horses that were in a stable on a military base. Um, and this means that the specific biology of horses is no longer important in the way that it had been in the 19th century and centuries pre- previously. And as a result, the diseases are not really, the diseases of horses are not, for the most part, relevant to state power. That doesn't mean that they're completely irrelevant. Uh, in the cases of horses, this is something that I touch on uh, towards the end of the chapter that you referenced. They are still, in some ways, sometimes used in military engagements. In Sudan, this happened the most dramatically in the, during the course of the genocide. Horsebacked militias were the aggressors that were um, undertaking the genocide in Darfur. And this is true of other animal diseases. Though the state has become more and more decoupled from animals over the course of the 20th century, there are still ways in which animal diseases can still become of concern. For cattle, it's true that their their labor force on the farm is not as important anymore, but they are still food. And the fact that that, that we eat meat and that people in the region eat meat means that there are still concerns about the diseases of cattle because there are concerns about the food chain and the same and with camels the, the concern is slightly different uh, this is really touching on something that's going on with our world right now before COVID-19 there was MERS which is a camel which is a disease in camels that, that has crossed over that has crossed over to humans and there was fear of what will happen to this disease and camels are the reservoir of this disease and they can and they were, were able to Transmit this to humans, and therefore there was a concern. There was, and still is, a standing concern about this disease in camels.
3: Thank you, Dr. Searles. I will now pass over to Philip.
2: Thank you, Aishman, and uh, thank you to you as well, Dr. Searles. Um, I have two questions, and I think I'm going to ask ask them separately. Um, I'm firstly going to ask a question about um, your article in Northeast African Studies, which uh, Renee introduced earlier. Uh, you mentioned uh, the important role of the 1887 and thereafter Rinderpest epidemic, um, which killed around 90% of the region's pastoralist herds uh, in shaping state power in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. However, you also state that European colonial rulers did not effectively assert state power over pastoralists until the 1920s. And my question is then, how do you account for this 30 to 40 year gap? What is going on in the intervening, in, in the intervening period, giving the centrality you attribute to the Rinderpest epidemic and the establishment of colonial rule? Thank
0: you. Um, so I think that it's important to understand that uh, the presence of diseases can be uh, can lay the groundwork, even if they don't build the edifice of power for another state, uh, which is what happens in this context. Like uh, the Rinderpest episodic over the course of the late 1880s into the 1890s, really shifted the balance of power in the region. And then there was something else that had to that had to happen in order to capitalize this. So I can lay this out. Before the, before the, the episodic, uh, the balance of power was shifted to local states on the ground. The agents of European empires were themselves weak on the ground. They were present. They were on the coast often. And they had access to large imperial networks that were able, if the network wanted, to, to push resources towards, towards um, supporting these endeavors in the region, except the people that were actually on the ground were not the gatekeepers of these resources. They didn't command these resources, they had to ask for them. They had to ask often up the chain of command and then over long distances with a lot of people having competing interests and this was not necessarily always at the forefront of, uh, this region was not necessarily always at the forefront of imperial imaginations and as a result they were often told no. Like it was possible, maybe they could have done something before the ep- epidemic happened, the episodic happened, but they, they were told no. And as a result, they were stuck at the coast. And at the same time, the people that were inland, the states that were inland, the local states, they had local command of the resources. They had themselves a large, a large resource, a resource base. They were able to command this Often by 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 using their client relationships, going down this cascading hierarchy to demand that to demand demand that resources get moved up the state, and then to be used for defensive and, and offensive measures. And this is part of what ends up happening, for example, in Sudan in the first phase of the Modest Rebellion, that that where Sudanese uh, militias driven by uh, theocratic ideology that drive the Egyptians that were ruling them since the 1820s out of the land. They are able to command the resources and push them out. And then when the British begin intervening in 1881, they are, they are able to do this also for, against them. Um, and then this changes with with the episodic. When, when Rinder press was introduced for local, for local states, they lose their resource base. So they lose it really in kind of three ways. One is just First, the productive capacity of the land drops. When there isn't cattle to, to run the water wheels, to irrigate land where irrigation is needed, and there isn't uh, cattle to pull the plows in land where plowing is used, then suddenly yields go down. There isn't enough food. There isn't enough food for the local population, and there isn't enough food to support standing armies, to, support, to, to promote campaigns. Also, at the same time, wealth evaporates. Like cattle are a major store of wealth, and suddenly, 90% of that is gone. Imagine if suddenly 90% of everyone's money disappeared. There is a lot of implications for what you can buy, what you can, how it is that it is possible to import things, to move things, how the market can work. And then also importantly, social relationships break down. right? Cattle, are you, the lending of cattle, the offer of cattle, the, um, the offer of cattle as bride wealth is part of what creates new households, but also solidifies relationships. And this is not possible. Um, So that's on that side of the balance and then on the side for the agents of empire they nothing changes for them they are still in the exact same position they are still at the coast they are still at the tail ends of a large imperial network where they don't have any any say of how resources can go and uh, they can just ask for resources and see maybe they come and maybe they don't come and so what what ends up happening is because of complex diplomatic relations in the 1890s the, for a brief middle period of time in the mid-1890s, around 1895, uh, the British, the French, the Italians say, yes, we will give they, the central planners say, yes, you will, we will give you the resources to command the armies to move into the interior, to take territory. And then they do this, and then they are told, and then the, the new colonial rulers are told, now make do. Find your, find your local resources. Create your state locally with only what you can. What you can get with, within narrow within narrow um, parameters of what is legitimate to take as resources, and the result is that they're not able to hold lots of places. They claim it. They claim huge territories, but what they can do in these territories, whether they can even station anyone there, you know, it's uh, it's questionable. It's it's something for the empirical record. If you look at the empirical record becomes very clear, it does not happen. They are not able to do this. And there is a vacuum that then, that then uh, comes up. And this vacuum in these, in these parts of the, 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 some partially incorporated parts of the, the region into imperial networks, it's opportunities for local rulers to gain lost power. The one that does this the best is Menelik, the second in, in Ethiopia, in this void in the 1890s, where the British, French, and Italian are not sure whether or not they want to commit any money to doing anything in this region. He sends large raids to Somalia and Ethiopia, Somalia and Ethiopia's southern and southwestern marshes. um, So scholars have focused primarily on these raids were slave raids. This is a very important part of how the slave trade uh, expands over the course of the end of the 19th century. I have written about this. But it is true, one of the things that they are buying, that they're raiding is slaves. But slaves are sold and then the cash is used. But the other thing that they are taking, especially in Somalia, is uh, cattle. And cattle is then redistributed locally between the state and its clients. It is a way that shores up the state. Mendelec is able to use redistribution of access to these slaves that can be sold, but also access to cattle to one shore up his network. And then as cattle gets passed down to re-increase the productive capacity of the, the highland center of Ethiopia. And as a result, he's able to create his, recreate his states. Others that were not so successful, they didn't know how to muster whatever limited resources they had. They mustered them in the wrong way. They sought after quick gains without having to look to the future. So this happens a lot with the uh, various sultanates that are near the coast who become very invested in the slave trade, but don't reinvest into something else. And then when the slave trade begins to dry up, they, their research dries up. And then for complicated reasons having to do with how Europeans imagine how an empire should work in the 1920s, that's when suddenly the resources begin to flow in these imperial networks towards uh, creating a system in which the British actually occupy all of Sudan and Somaliland, or the, the Italians all of Eritrea and the French all of Djibouti.
2: Wonderful. Uh, thank you very much for that, Dr. Sales. Um, my second question is, um, well, not really related to that at all. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's a bit broader, um, but I think it speaks to your wider research focuses in which I've actually become very interested. Um, I really enjoyed reading your work on the effects of Little Ice Age famines and related droughts on the state in the SRSR, for example, um, linking a long period of global climatic anomalies to food scarcity, higher prices for food, and the collapse of state power in much of the Southern Red Sea region in the 18th and 19th centuries. Human epidemics are very much a feature of this history. Drought, as we know, is often accompanied by epidemics. I wondered Is drought also accompanied often by animal diseases and what role do they play in these broader patterns of global climate, human diseases, and state power
0: in the history of the Southern Red Sea region? I mean, yeah, like the animal diseases function in many ways like human diseases and we see the same kinds of patterns. So there is a direct link often between animal diseases and drought. And this is because of the way contagion functions. Contagion is often a function of the size of the population and its density. And under normal conditions, it is very typical for grazing strategies to try to limit this, limit the size and spread of a population, limit the size of the, so- the population of animals in any given area and spread them out because this is a way of maintaining pastures. It's the only way to ensure that pastures don't get exhausted after in a short amount of time or that they are conserved for, next, for the possibility for next year. And this is not possible during during drought. Pastures become limited, and animal owners are then faced with a choice of trying to conserve for the future or trying for a future, but it's possible their animals may not survive, or trying to make sure that their animals survive, and coming to the future with whatever comes. And often, they choose this latter. They increase the density. they bring They drive animals to the limited areas where there are where there is grazing, where there is water. And then these limited areas become themselves focal points for the spread of disease. This is definitely something that happened with Rinderpest, that Rinderpest was part of a compounded set of uh, environmental cat- catastrophes, that there was a drought and therefore limited pastures. And so you have this kind of coming together of, of, um, of herds. And then once the disease becomes apparent, the herds scatter. And as they, because no one wants their animals near dying animals, and because there's a lag in how the disease in between infection and uh, symptoms, then this scattering of herds is what is what allows for the disease to uh, spread quickly. Um, and so this is this gets to maybe a kind of broader message for your the overall project at the IOWC, which is that like. Today, in this context, we're only talking about animal diseases, but these don't really happen in a, in a vacuum. Animal diseases are often, and other ecological ha- hazards are often compounding problems. They come together with something else and they cannot really be, be, be separated from each other. And this is, this is something that I have been um, exploring elsewhere. Recently, I wrote, something, I wrote a report for the Rift Valley Institute looking at uneven risk exposures in past human epidemics in the African Red Sea region. And it's very clear that internally displaced people and refugees are at an increased risk for catching communicable diseases such as COVID-19. It's very likely that it, once it gets into their, their encampments that it will spread quickly with a lot of uh, the tragedy that that implies. But it's, it is also clear that global climate change will lead to increased regional instability as competition over increasingly scarce resources gets harder, this will lead to even more migration and resettlement in unhealthy conditions, which will then create, more, will create the underlying groundwork for more uh, potential spread of epidemics quickly and uh, more tragedy.
2: Great. Thanks very much for that, Dr. Sales. Uh, I'm now going to pass back over to Rene, who I think is going to wrap up.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Philip. Um, and thank you, Archisman, for your questions. Um, of course, thank you so much to the star of the show, Dr. Stephen Sorales, for joining us today and expanding on his very interesting research in animal diseases in the FRSR. Um, so, links to his bio and his publications are posted in the podcast on the Appraising Risk website. Uh, so. Go check them out if you're interested in learning more about his research. And thank you also to you, our listeners, for downloading and for tuning in today. Once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast.
0: The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project for crazing Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.